Hello and welcome to the Owen Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with the legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Paul Henson and I'm a partner in our National Real Estate Disputes team. This week, I'm delighted to be joined by three of my Owen Mitchell colleagues and fellow real estate dispute experts, Amy Wagg, Glenn Rhodes and George Cohen. Now, the focus today is on residential matters, which have hit the headlines after the King's speech this week mapped out the government's legislative plans in this area, and in particular, the Renters' Reform Bill. We are going to cover some, but not all, of the most relevant changes that landlords and tenants should look out for today. Now, Amy, when I was preparing for this podcast, it dawned on me that we seem to have been talking about some of the changes announced in the King's speech for what seems like absolutely forever. Um, I think the government first mentioned changing the law in this area about five years ago. And actually, I look back on my post on LinkedIn as I've been tracking these changes over the years. And I wrote a piece on the government's white paper, which is called A Fairer Private Rented Sector in June 2022. And I did say in the introduction to that article that we should be wary of government U-turns. I think it turns out I was right. So can you tell us where we are with the progress of the government's plans as set out in the bill? Yeah, definitely. Uh, So as you correctly said, the bill began its journey in around about 2018, 2019 but was first officially mentioned in the Queen's speech in around about May 2021. But it did not reach the first reading stage until May of this year. And all that stage really involves is the name of the bill being read out in the House of Commons. There's no debate or anything at all. Like most things, the delay in getting the bill to the first reading stage stemmed from COVID-19 and the need for the government's concentration to be more focused on the impact of the pandemic rather than anything else. The bill then reached the second reading last month, which is the first big and much delayed step in its journey. This is when the bill was debated for the very first time. However, no amendments were actually made. There was, however, a carryover motion to allow the bill to make it through the next session of Parliament after the King's speech, which you said took place on Tuesday. Without that carryover motion, the bill would have needed to start again with a new first reading in the new Parliament, and we would have seen even more delays to the bill becoming law. Next is the committee stage, which is expected to take place by the 5th of December this year. This is where a committee of MPs will scrutinise the bill line by line, and it's an opportunity for MPs to propose, debate and vote on suggested amendments and new clauses. The government did announce, however, at the second reading that it would not proceed with the abolition of Section 21 no-fault evictions until reforms to the justice system are in place, and that will only continue when sufficient progress has been made to improve the courts and their, their current backlog. The change in stance was used to ensure that landlords felt more confident with the abolition of Section 21 that they would not be waiting months and even years to be able to regain possession of their properties. However, on the other hand, his setback means that tenants could face uncertainty and potential evictions as landlords may try to push these through by using the current Section 21 accelerator procedure before the bill reaches royal assent. The recent government's response to the select committee's questions included trying to modernise the existing court process, such as digitalising some of the administrative tasks they currently have. But they refused the recommendation of introducing a specialist housing court but they also confirmed that they invest in mediation between landlords and tenants to avoid the need to progress possession proceedings in order to free up some of the court's time. But they attempted to do this during COVID with the introduction of review hearings, which, as we all experienced, turned out to be massively ineffective through the lack of engagement from tenants. The government confirmed that they wouldn't prioritise rent cases, though, because they comprise a large majority of claims, which I think will contribute to the current issue rather than solve it. However, they did confirm that they will be willing to explore the prioritisation of certain other cases, including antisocial behaviour. 
Although I think in our experience, we can safely say that the courts are struggling with the amount of work they currently have, let alone how much this will increase once Section 21 is abolished. And the backlog, in my opinion, is caused by funding cuts and lack of staff rather than any issues with process, which is what the government seemed to be focusing on. Thanks, Amy. Um, yeah, George, is this an issue um, in terms of the backlogs and delays in the court process or, or is this the sort of landlord um, community exaggerating those delays? No, I, I think those concerns are legitimate. And uh, I, in my view, the court hasn't fully recovered from the delays suffered during COVID and the backlogs there. There's a big discrepancy between courts as to backlogs. And I think the London is generally the worst affected. And we, we've had some delays of uh, over 12 months in, in some cases. So it's a very serious problem. And, and I suppose also the fact that there is a discrepancy between courts is also a problem because it, it seems unfair that some places are able to get court proceedings done quicker than others. Yeah, and, and Glenn, I think, um, have you got any sort of comments on the enforcement stage? Because that's another part of the process, I think, where we, we see delays um, uh, that are common across the court estate. And uh, I think certainly our private individual landlords find that quite surprising. Yes, that's right. I think, uh, as with as is the case with the general court system, the bail system has also faced some severe delays, mainly due to a lack of resource, as um, as Amy set out with the with the court in general, but also uh, more acutely, particularly down south, due to a lack of uh, protective equipment, for example, uh, stab vests. And um, what this has meant is that some of our private landlords, which usually would go through the county court bailiff process, are being pushed towards the high court eviction process, which is a, a uh, more expensive, but historically more efficient and quicker way of getting possession. But even there, we're facing delays, again, due to the administrative problems with the courts. And also, um, I think the high court has had to slash a number of its staff recently. So we're facing delays right through the system from issuing claims all the way through to enforcement. And as everyone else said, I really don't see this changing unless the courts, uh, sorry, unless the government um, increase the funding available for the court system. And there's been no announcements that um, anything like that is coming our way uh, so far. Yeah, no, I agree with that, Glenn. And, and, and Amy, I think you mentioned earlier there's this, this talk about the digitisation of the possession process from start to finish. Can you give some examples of how that might work in practice? And have we got something similar to that already in practice that we can use as an example? Yeah, so at the moment we have what's called PCOL or possession claims online, which is what we predominantly use for the Section 8 procedure. And it is a digitized process where you just put in all the information you need that would usually be on a claim form and a particulars of claim. And nine times out of 10, that usually gives you an automatic hearing date. Uh, there are some instances where we don't get an automatic hearing date and then you're still waiting for an actual human being to put that court hearing date into a judge's diary, etc. But even though that part is digitized and that part seems to be easy, the problem is still with the actual staff at the court themselves. A lot of times we do see where hearings are vacated or delayed because of lack of judges. There's no judges around to actually hear the hearings themselves. Um, and in, even only yesterday, we had uh, an example where something's been put in in a London court for what's called a floating hearing, which is where you get a hearing date and a time, but you could find out literally hours before your hearing that it's not going ahead because there's no judge available to hear it. And that the court actually has the ability to adjourn said hearing three times before you actually get a fixed date there. So we may even still be facing massive delays to even hearings or anything like that. So even making stuff digital is not going to 
change the fact that there's just not enough people to hear hearings. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that, Amy. Um, now, look, if we turn back to looking at the, the proposals set out in the bill, George, can you give us perhaps two of the more eye-catching proposals um, from a tenant's perspective? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the most eye-catching one is the abolition of Section 21. And this is uh, commented in the press as the end of no-fault evictions. But having looked at the bill, I think the, the effect of this may be overstated to some degree. And the first reason for that is that often no fault is equated with no reason. You see reports from tenants of being evicted from their property for no reason. And, and that's can't really be the case uh, because landlords will always have a reason for wanting possession of the, the property back. Um, but the difference now is that landlords will not be able to get an eviction without actually giving the tenant a reason and having that reason adjudged to be lawful by the court. And they'll have to rely on one or more of the existing Section 8 grounds or the new ones that are set out in the bill, which I think we'll come on to later. And then obviously tenants will have the opportunity to oppose that ground at court. And the second reason I think the end of no fault evictions could be overstated is that quite simply some of the grounds in Section 8, the, both the existing ones and the new ones, are in fact no fault grounds. They, they're to do with the circumstances of the landlord. I think the other most eye-catching point for the tenants is the end of fixed term tenancies. Um, so they've been outlawed by the Renters Reform Bill. And um, currently most tenancies are fixed term of six or 12 months or sometimes even longer. And if the tenant has a problem with the property, they are stuck with it until the end of the fixed term. But under the new regime, they'll be able to leave at any time upon serving notice on the landlord. The current four weeks notice period for a tenant notice to quit is going to be extended to two months to allow the landlord's time to market the property for a new tenant. Thanks, thanks George. And then, Glenn, I suppose if we can turn to you and just just perhaps you can outline a couple of eye-catching changes that um, that landlords might be interested in from from the bills. Yeah, certainly. So just building on on what George said, I think you know the end of fixed term tenancies and six twenty one is going to be a massive change for landlords in how they manage their portfolios. It's a massive move of con move of control from landlords over the over the properties and tenancies to the tenants. So there's going to be a big change in how landlords actually manage their property portfolios. But I want to focus on two particular particular things. The first being uh, what the removal of Section 21 means uh, for the prescribed requirements. So just to recap, Section 21, uh, the no-fault eviction process, relies on, on uh, meeting various prescribed requirements in order for the court to, to give you a possession order. And if you meet these prescribed requirements, the court has to give you a possession order. Uh, and these prescribed requirements have, have grown over the years and become now very complex, very lengthy and very difficult for uh, individuals who aren't professional letting agents, who aren't professional landlords or, or lawyers to really understand. The most well-known of these is the requirement to give uh, certain documents to tenants, for example, the how to rent guides, um, the gas age certificate and the energy performance certificate. Now, uh, with the doing away of Section 21, a lot of these sort of requirements from a possession standpoint fall away. Now, they still apply um, from a sort of compliance angle, from a regulatory point of view. So obviously, uh, under the gas safety regulations, you'll always still have to provide your tenants with, with gas safety certificates and make sure your, your property is, is gas safe, etc. But from a, uh, it will no longer be a bar to possession. 
the only one that will continue to apply that we can see is the deposit requirements, um, which landlords are, are well used to have been, been dealing with for, for many years. And this is, this is quite a, a big change. Although landlords are losing Section 21, the loss of this really complicated process uh, and requirements will mean that the process uh, processes that are left are going to be much more understandable, much clearer to landlords to know how to get possession and also clear as for tenants as well to know, you know, what, what their landlord has, has to do to get them out of a property. So I, I think this could lead to a, to a much clearer uh, possession system, uh, at least uh, for landlords. The second thing I want to talk about is the to balance out getting rid of Section 21, uh, as George sort of referenced earlier, they're bringing in various new grounds for the Section 8 process. Now, this is the process whereby if a landlord wants to get possession, they have to meet one of various statutory grounds, for example, you know, rent arrears, antisocial behaviour, things like that. The, there are sort of two types of, of grounds that uh, can be relied on, mandatory grounds and discretionary grounds. Mandatory grounds mean that where this ground is made out, a judge has to give, pos give possession. There is no discretion for the judge to, to avoid giving possession. And discretionary grounds, which, which as, as, as they sound, uh, the judge has more discretion and they can decide, yeah, the ground's made out, but is it actually reasonable to make an order in this case? And the most usual ground, or the most common ground that's relied on by landlords is ground eight, which is where there is two months rent arrears at the date a notice is served and at the date of the hearing. If the tenant is in arrears at the date of the hearing and the date of the notice, the court has to give a possession order. Now, there's always been a bit of a loophole here in that if the tenant reduces their arrears below two months before the hearing, then that ground can no longer be relied on. There are discretionary grounds for where the tenant in repeated uh, rent arrears, you know, uh, persistently is in rent arrears throughout the tenancy. But in our experience, uh, courts don't like making possession orders necessarily uh, where they don't have to. It takes a lot to convince them to do so. So we do have certain uh, certain situations where uh, a tenant frequently falls in and out of arrears, in and out of the 12-month sort of ground, and landlords aren't able to get possession. Now, what the government has done is brought in a new ground 8A, uh, which means that where a tenant is in two months arrears on three separate occasions, the court has to give possession. So it's a new mandatory ground. And this is important because it, it basically means that landlords can have the confidence that where tenants uh, are accruing um, serious arrears and then managing to bring that under the two-month threshold for ground eight, there is a sort of time cap on that. They can't do that in perpetuity. They can get possession back at some point. The second ground that I want to talk about is ground 14, which relates to antisocial behaviour. This is the common problem we hear landlords uh, talking about, where they are concerned that where they've got a tenant which is engaging in, in, in problematic antisocial behaviour, they are concerned that there's they can't get them out very easily. And this is because ground uh, 14 is a discretionary ground. And currently, um, ground 14 requires you to prove that um, the behaviour of the tenant is likely to cause antisocial behaviour to people such as, as neighbours or, or the landlord, etc. Uh, and then even, even where you can show that the behaviour is likely to cause antisocial behaviour, that then the court must then decide if it's reasonable to grant an order. The government's made a very small but significant change to this ground. In show, so no, no longer do you need to show that it, the behaviour is likely to cause um, antisocial behaviour. You now only need to show that it is capable of causing antisocial behaviour. This is a very small change, but obviously showing that something is capable of causing antisocial behaviour is a lot easier than showing something is likely to cause antisocial behaviour and is likely to apply to, to a far wider range of circumstances. Now, it's uncertain yet how the court will deal with this, this change. Um, it, it, my, I have a bit of a doubt as to whether 
courts will really um, grant this uh, grant this ground as widely as the government intends. But it's certainly a signal from the government that it wants courts to be deal with antisocial behaviour more robustly, and it gives the courts the power to apply the ground in, in, in much wider circumstances. So these are two big concessions to landlords, um, despite the loss of Section 21. Thanks, Glenn. Um, so, so, Amy, if I can turn to you, I mean, we've heard from George and Glenn about um, some of the significant changes in the bill uh, from both landlords tenants' perspectives. But, I mean, is there anything else significant that you've seen that might be of interest to our listeners? Yeah, certainly. Um, there are two other changes which I would like to touch on briefly. Uh, the first is the change proposed in regards to tenants having pets in a property. Now, as we all know, pets are supposed to be our best friends and a lot of people do tend to have one. And a lot of tenancies now include a restriction on tenants having pets in the home without their landlord's consent, which has been a very clear part of tenancies for some time. The main reason landlords seem to deny tenants having pets are due to the damage that they can cause to their properties. Whilst they can take any damage costs out of deposit if a tenant moves out, this doesn't necessarily cover the amount of damage that a pet can cause. So now the government are proposing to make it completely illegal for landlords to unreasonably withhold consent from tenants who request permission to have a pet in the home. The select committee recommended that the government abandon the promise to make it completely illegal. However, the government just didn't accept this. But they also recommended that the government should explain what constitutes unreasonably withholding consent, because obviously that's quite a selective thing to have. The government did respond that they don't agree with the proposal to abandon the promise to make it illegal completely, as pets can bring huge joy to their owners. And a lot of pet owners have found it difficult in the past to rent a property because of these restrictions. However, the government did confirm that a landlord can still refuse a pet if it is reasonable. Whilst it's not possible to list all of these circumstances, they anticipate that such circumstances will include the size of the pet as opposed to the size of the property whether the property includes common shared areas with other tenants, whether those other tenants have allergies or phobias that can be caused by the animals, and whether the property has access to outdoor space for such animals like dogs and cats, etc. The select committee did, however, agree with the proposal to make pet insurance a permitted payment under the Tenant Fees Act 2019. This would mean that landlords are able to charge tenants for insurance against pet damage, or require that tenants take out a policy themselves for any damages that they may cause. The second part that I want to touch upon is the selling the property ground which has been introduced. So the current legislation includes a ground which allows a landlord to serve notice on a tenant to leave their property if the landlord or certain family members want to move into that property. However, now the government have introduced a new ground, which gives landlords the ability to serve notice on a tenant for the purposes of actually selling the property um, if they want to sell it with vacant possession. The government has seen that abolishing Section 21 obviously will increase security for tenants, as George has pointed out earlier. However, they've also seen that this needs to be balanced with the landlord's need for flexibility. They government have confirmed this ground cannot be used in the first six months of a tenancy to replicate Section 21. Um, which is why they refused the committee's recommendation to increase this to a year. And this new ground will also restrict the landlord from remarketing or reletting the property within three months of using it to mitigate against misuse by landlords who just may use the ground as an excuse to evict a tenant, kind of like using the Section 21 that they do now. 
But the government did refuse the committee's recommendation to extend this to six months, as the government confirmed that a landlord's circumstance can change just as much as a tenant's. However, the government has seen that the introduction of this ground will still allow landlords to successfully obtain possession of their property from tenants in order to sell it. But it also provides protection to tenants in that a landlord is unable to abuse the process. And if they do, they'll miss out on at least three months rental payments or they'll have to wait an additional three months to remarket the property should the sale fall through. Thanks, Amy. George, as, as Amy's reference, we've, we've, we've been looking at this, um, the government responses to the the Leveling Up Housing Communities Committee recommendations. One of the areas, obviously, they they seem to touch on, I think, was the the student market, which is obviously a, a, a huge a part of the um, the PRS market. Can you just tell us what where the direction of travel might be from from the government responses on that? And I think also, if you can just touch on the rent review provisions, which um, which the, the recommendations and the and the government's responses to those areas as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there are a few interesting points, and I think the biggest one is students. I think that most of the, well, well, certainly a big part of the concern in general was that student lets have to be fixed term by definition, and this benefits uh, tenants and landlords alike. So the committee recommended that the government retain fixed term tenancies just in the student sector. The, the government did buy into this to an extent, but they, they refused fixed term tenancies for two reasons. They said e- even with a fixed term, the landlord is not automatically entitled to possession at, at the end of the fixed term. The landlord will still need to serve notice and issue proceedings in the usual way pursuant to Section 21. And uh, they were also concerned that students should be able to leave poor quality properties early by serving notice on the landlord and shouldn't be tied into tenancies that are not suitable. So instead, they've introduced or they say they're going to introduce a new ground for possession in respect of student lets only. They haven't given any further details at this point. So we'll we'll have to see how that works out in practice. Um, But I think that will hopefully go some way to ameliorating those concerns. And the next point is rent review clauses. Just very briefly, uh, the committee recommended that rent review clauses are kept, but just with... um, certain restrictions on them and that was flat out refused by the government and uh, with respect to antisocial behaviour the ground 14 that Glenn touched on earlier the committee recommended that that ground be made a mandatory ground so the landlord the, the court must order possession if the landlord can show that the ground applies and uh, but that was refused by the government and what they said was that mandatory grounds have to be easily provable for example the tenant is two months in arrears it's a very black and white concept Um, but with ground 14 we're talking about behavior that is capable of causing a nuisance or annoyance to person residing in the property or anyone else in the vicinity so that, that would be too difficult for a mandatory ground but they did make some interesting comments and we'll have to see how they expand upon them uh but they're going to recommend or legislate that written tenancy agreements must include clauses warning tenants that antisocial behaviour can result in eviction and will consider a non-exhaustive list of prohibited behaviours. So if they do publish that list, that would presumably make it easier for the landlords to be able to show that the tenant has exhibited behaviour which entitles the landlords to an eviction. And they're also going to legislate to expand the principles that judges must take account of 
in deciding whether an eviction is reasonable under ground 14 and that will include the impact on victims and whether the tenant has failed to engage with other interventions so uh, yeah interesting points there i think from the government yeah thanks george and um but that's it for today. Thank, thank you, Amy, um, George and Glenn for your excellent insights. Uh, we'll be back uh, as and when there's further developments take place in this area. Thanks for listening to the Irwin Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using to make sure you don't miss our next episode.